You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast brought to you by New Altra. My name is Tracy Delastro and I'm a second year student dietitian studying at Wrexham University. Through this podcast, we aim to share knowledge and inspire student dietitians and gain insight from knowledgeable and experienced guests. For this third episode, we're finding out more about multidisciplinary team working including how dietitians work alongside speech and language therapists and the challenges and benefits of MDT working. With this in mind, I'm delighted to welcome dietitian Fran Alsop and speech and language therapist Jackie Leroyd, who have a lot of experience both in their individual roles, but also together during their time at HMP Berwyn in Wrexham. Fran is a registered dietitian, currently working as a clinical lead in a mental health inpatient unit. Fran has experienced a number of areas of dietetics in her career, including oncology, surgery, prisoner health, teaching in higher education, stroke, gastro and COVID ICU. She's well placed to discuss how a dietetic and SLT professions intertwine as she's had the pleasure of working alongside some very talented colleagues in various settings. Fran is the 2022 winner of the CN Award, Clinical Nutrition Professional of the Year. Jackie is a speech and language therapist with a range of clinical experience who is currently working in operational management. If pressed, Jackie identifies as a forensic speech and language therapist with an interest in psychologically informed care and services which are designed to be trauma-friendly. Jackie is the author of recently published Working with Adults with Communication Difficulties in the Criminal Justice System, a practical guide for speech and language therapists. In this episode, both Fran and Jackie will discuss the importance of MDT working and the reasons why dietitians may need to work closely with other health professionals such as speech and language therapists and how these two therapies often go hand in hand. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome our two guests to the podcast. Hi, Fran. Hi, Jackie. Thank you both for joining me today. Hi, Tracy. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's lovely to see you both together. Hi. Hi. So to start with, can you both give us a brief overview of your current roles? Yeah. So... At the moment, I'm a clinical lead dietitian. It's quite a fancy title, isn't it? But I'm I'm the dietitian running a service within a mental health inpatient unit in Shrewsbury, um, in Shropshire. Um, I work with patients with a multitude of nutritional needs from refeeding syndrome, nutrition support, weight management, diabetes education. Um, and they also have the, the co-factor of having a severe mental illness diagnosis. And normally they're under a section while they're within our care. Um, so we're we're responsible for their care. So these diagnoses can include things like psychosis, um, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, anxiety disorders and depressive disorders as well. So that's what I'm currently doing. Um. So. Um, Six months ago, I chose to have a little bit of change of direction. So I had always um, been in clinical practice and and carried a caseload and worked directly with with patients and clients and service users. And so six months ago, I decided to have a little change and try something different. So I'm having a little adventure into operational management. So that basically means that you use the same skills that you would with patients, clients, families and service users. Um, but I have a, a more of an overview of some services. So I'm looking after um, dietetic speech and language therapy and some other 
um, community-based services across the whole of Staffordshire. So a population of around 100,000 people, I believe, um, and a, a quite a large staff group. And um, But it, although it's different because it's not a clinical caseload as such, so I don't sit in clinic looking after people, um, it's really similar in that it's about caring for people and Although I'm one step removed from the actual service users and clients, um, I try and care for the staff so that they can care for the for the people referred into our services. So it's still about trying to understand what people need and how we can help them. Um, but I've got slightly more decision making um, ability so that I can think about would it be better if we did more proactive work around things like obesity or nutrition support? rather than waiting until a person is referred into a service and discovered that they're in a pickle and that we need to sort the pickle out. So I've got slight, it's a slight different direction, slightly more decision making, um, working and looking after clinicians and nurturing them and trying to to help the workforce to, to have that work-life balance, um, but still with patients very much as that sort of a, a focal point. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it's... Um... It's interesting to know the to know the two sides of of your roles as as different clinicians. And um, so, how would you both describe the primary role of a, an MDT? I mean, how do you define it? I suppose it's putting the patient at the heart of everything that you do and working collaboratively as a team to get the best outcomes for your patients um, or service users, whatever the correct terminology is these days. Um, I suppose it's acknowledging that every professional has a part to play within patient care and knowing where to outreach support from to make sure that you're not doing it alone and that that patient has the whole NHS behind them to support them. Would you agree? I do agree. I think that everybody could look at the same individual that's referred into a service and understand them through the lens of their professional identity. So Fran could meet a person um, Mrs. Mary Smith, and understand Mary Smith very much based on her training as a dietitian. And I could understand Mary Smith very much based in my training as a speech and language therapist. And likewise, a nurse, a doctor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, um, you know, another AHP practitioner, everyone will understand that person through that lens. And, and the important thing to know is that nobody is right or wrong in their understanding of that person. It's about their training. And the outcomes for the individual are going to be so much better if we can bring all of those pieces of jigsaw puzzle together and understand that person through all those multiple different ways of understanding them. But at the same time, listening to them and what makes them tick and what matters to them. Um, mm. So an MDT includes the individual that the MDT is about. So it's not a meeting that we all rush off into a secret location and we all have a secret conversation behind closed doors. It should be a, 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 a forum whereby the patient is a participant and the, the loudest and strongest voice and their family, carers, representative, friends, advocates should be part of that um, so that we know that we're doing the right thing because I will have a view on what I think is best for that person, but I might be wrong. So that is that is how an MDT should be. There should be a group of people coming together and it's about trying to find commonality of value base so that everybody in that setting, and I guess that's about workplace culture as well, 
And everybody in that setting is buying into the fact that, you know, that person's wishes, needs and, and health experience and past um, past experiences matter to inform what we're going to do now and next. Um, so there's something around the culture of settings that can either foster a really healthy MDT environment where there's lots of respect and lots of listening and talking, or a slightly less healthy one where um, so um, you could have a voice that's louder than other voices within an MDT. And that makes a disproportionate skew in that decision making. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think having the open and honest discussions and, and like you said, Fran, about having the, the patient at the heart of it, it's um it sounds really important. So thank you for, for clearing that up. And as um a student dietitian or other student clinicians, for example, who and which health professionals may we come across within an MDT during our time? I mean, where do you start? I suppose that every single health professional should be considered as part of any MDT discussion. Um, and sometimes that's also thinking outside of the box. So within my new role, I'm learning about the role of art therapists and how they can be integrated into our MDT discussions. And that's something I've never come across before. Um, but even within my current job in mental health, my my shared office, I sit next to a speech and language therapist, an OT, um, an AHP apprentice, I sit next to a physio and an activity coordinator. So our office alone is just one big MDT. Um, I mean, everybody should be involved is the real answer there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. so. And it will depend very much on what kind of setting a person chooses to work in. So if you're in a, a quite a traditional, maybe a traditional hospital setting, that is probably quite heavily informed by the medical model. So you will have... Um, lots of medics um, and, and specialist doctors, advanced clinical practitioners, um, maybe even the ward manager um, or a discharge um, coordinator and those kind of roles within that medical model. Um, and that would be very much looking at kind of um, understanding the, me the medical model looks at the human being as a load of components and one component has gone wrong. So let's try and fix that component and then they'll be fixed. So it's very much sort of seeing the human body as, as components. Um, so you might have in that MDT somebody that's, say, a cancer specialist or someone that's a bowel specialist or someone that's, you know, a specialist in whichever field. Um, and, and that they would be offering their really specialist input into that case. Um, if you were choosing to work in maybe a community setting, the MDT would be slightly different because it would be maybe slightly more GP led. Um, but then there would also be perhaps a social worker, perhaps there would be people from a voluntary or community or social enterprise involved. So I was recently in Stoke-on-Trent and, and we were at an, an amazing training day about obesity and about the need to do something in Stoke-on-Trent about high obesity levels in that population. And there's a group of people that have experienced quite low socioeconomic status. And so um, trying to support them in a kind of proactive way to have a healthier diet and have less inequality around food. And there was lots and lots of people that I don't know if you know much about Stoke-on-Trent, but they've got a couple of football teams that you may have heard of. So Stoke <laughs> and also Port Vale. 
Um, and those those football teams do quite a lot of community work to have. They use their trainers and their physios when they're not training the actual football teams. Um, they do community sort of health and well-being sessions where older people who need to work on some mobility to help reduce frailty and risk of falls or people that are overweight who need to work on some obesity stuff can come together and it's a little bit social, but it's also a, a an opportunity and it's an intervention in itself. So in a community setting, you can have interventions that are provided by partners that are outside of a, of a medical team, if that makes sense. So people that are in voluntary sectors, stroke association, folk like that, um, people that are social enterprises, so perhaps they've got a grant from someone to do a piece of work for a few years, or people that are community providers like Port Vale Football Club. Mm. Um, so they they would be people within your MDT because they can help and they can make a difference. And, and I mean, if you've got a patient who is a massive Port Vale fan and their issue is around obesity, what's going to, like, what's what's you know what is bad about them going to their favorite football club and having a lovely time using the same facilities as their favorite football players um you know it's so motivating and so empowering and then you could have a setting that maybe is um a setting that's kind of more um psychologically informed so has a psychiatrist and a psychologist as part of the team um so it it really is variable depending whether you're working in a in a service that that is medical model social model community model even if you go into something like um like like um addiction services and recovery services from um addiction or alcohol you'll have um community um people that you're working with that might be from a charity um there might be you might find yourself working with drug and alcohol abuse um um workers and people that are interested and know about how to create um, recovery in that sort of client group. Mm. So you never know who's going to be in your MDT. But what I would say is that everybody is brilliant. Um, so it it doesn't matter how they've come to be in that MDT, whether it's because they work for a football club or they have a lot of lived experience in alcohol misuse or they've done a medical degree, their voices are all equally as valid and important and should be heard um, because they're, you know they they know what they're on about um so that that's about the respect that needs to be in the mdt yeah and i think yeah. when we when we train dietetic students it's quite hard to pull yourself out of that medical model sometimes um, and see different approaches so it's really nice to hear you know the other side and remembering that the mdt aren't just registered health professionals and that it encompasses a much wider kind of organization and collab approach and that's got to be the future because um the nhs is a little bit financially strapped <laughs> so so um we need to look at working with partners that have other sources of funding um and that's not because we're dismantling the nhs it's just because the nhs is trying to do more than it's ever done before so um you know, the, the, there's the same amount of money, but we're trying to do more with it. And then the, you reach the point where actually we don't quite have enough money to stretch. But a local charity does or a local social enterprise does or, you know, so it's it's about us breaking down some of those barriers and saying that, you know, just because we're in a health profession doesn't mean that we can't link with and join up with other other situations that are really important. I am. Um, I went out to see a lady um, very recently 
94 year old lady with dementia who has an NG in situ, which is really very unusual. Um, and um, her her adult son is her court, court appointed advocate. So he's an important part of the MDT. And this lady is residing in a care home and the care home manager is quite a strong voice in the MDT and she has quite strong views. And because we couldn't, we were struggling to locate this lady in the kind of in the centre of what we were trying to do. We actually reached out to a charity for people with dementia and asked them to provide an advocate to represent this lady's wishes and views. And she's been key in creating a really successful MDT for that person. Um, and that person is now being able to be offered teaspoons of um, of tea. She was a an absolute teapot when she was a younger lady and her son felt that it was really important that she was offered tea accepting the risk of aspiration and um the gp needed some guidance from speech and language therapy about quantifying that risk um but the advocate was key in helping the the care setting understand um that it's not just about preventing aspiration at all costs it's also about quality of life and um so you know that accessing the advocate via a charity has been fundamental to achieving a good outcome for that lady yeah who's been sounds... having tea for the last three months oh. <laughs> that's re- that's a really positive story and i think you know hearing things like that and the story of Stoke-on-Trent, I think a, a lot more places could take things like that on board because, like you said, quality of life, it's a collaboration, it's a building a community, making use of what you have, especially with the financial and also staffing constraints of the NHS in particular. I think it's a very difficult time for everyone. Um, but getting people on board that thinking outside the box, um, that's some really good examples. Um, so thank you for that. Um so in terms of MDT then, um, MDT care, what are the advantages of an MDT? And there, are there any particular patient groups that may benefit from MDT-led care in particular? Do you want to go first this time? No, you go. Okay. Um, I suppose the advantage, um, the priority is that the patient is respected and that their needs are met. Um and sometimes actually the advantage is trying to establish those needs and desires and background of a patient and just have a representative that is a voice if the patient can't advocate for themselves. Um, and I suppose was the second part of the question about challenges. <laughs> um, no, it was it was more um, were there any particular patient groups that might benefit? Yeah. I suppose when you think of a patient group that might benefit, you immediately jump to patients that can't advocate for themselves. But actually, all patients benefit from an MDT approach. There isn't a single patient that wouldn't benefit. And if we're not including the MDT in our patient care, I would question why. Mm. You know, because as as we've touched on, everybody brings their own skill set and their own training and background and approach to situations. It's silly to not utilise it. Um, yeah we also think the more complex the patient the more mdt working should be um given the time and space to happen so um you know because um it's those really complex people that you're going to take more time to try and understand and try and work through what is best um so 
I think it for me, if you, you could have a continuum and if you've got a person that's not too complex and has some needs that are quite clearly covered by some evidence based practice that we can crack on with. But when they start having complex comorbidities, when they start having psychological or mental health needs that fit in with that, when they're starting to have complexities that are perhaps outside of a nice guideline, um, all of those things start to ramp up the need to um to to think harder and to to use that mdt and really lean into that support for me the the other beauty of it is that you're making a decision as a as a group of people so no one person is holding the duty of care and the responsibility there you're coming together as a cohort and you're making that informed choice weighing the pros and cons and and that way you're going to have safer practice but that so for some very difficult decisions, particularly around end of life cases or people that aren't going to have the most straightforward um, outcome, people that perhaps it's quite complicated and quite tricky or even going to be quite painful for the individual or members of the MDT. Um, that idea of working as a group and having a shared decision that we all own responsibility for um, is really, really good. Um, so I'm thinking about previously I've worked in secure settings and we'd make some quite tough decisions um, about risks associated with patients and also benefits of what we wanted to do as part of their rehabilitation. And that needed to be a collaborative decision because you can't mitigate for every risk. And if we let a person do something that we think is a positive for their rehab and it goes wrong, it shouldn't land in the lap of one individual. It should be a shared responsibility. In the I thing. agree. And I feel like when you work well with your MDT, you can take those positive risks and you mm -hmm. feel secure in taking those positive risks because you know that you'll, you'll evaluate how mm -hmm. that's gone as part of a team. And positive risk taking is key, isn't it, yeah, to actual absolutely. good outcomes? Because if we're being really defensive and practicing defensively and being cautious and saying, oh, we, we won't try that because we're just going to be cautious, we're not going to get the best outcomes. Positive risk taking is key, but it's scary as. Mm. And, you know, you need to put your big girl pants on, don't you, when you're going to do some positive risk taking. Yeah. But you need to have that respect and trust and feeling secure in your MDT. Otherwise, everyone's going to be risk averse, and that's really not okay. Yeah, that's um, that's a, good, a really good point. And I know within that whole conversation, Fran, um, one thing, one big word which we all talk about was challenges. So, you know, going back to that, what are the challenges? And I'm sure you, you've touched on it in bits already, but what are the the key challenges in an MDT and how how could things I suppose it, yeah it depends on the MDT so the challenges I've faced when I've worked collaboratively are that one person has a very strong voice within that team and doesn't like to have other people's voices as part of it um I suppose thinking about the challenges when you can't take positive risks or when you come to a conclusion that there's nothing that can be done for a patient so I've sat in when I worked in oncology I've sat in a few MDTs around end-of-life care and uh, you know care planning for patients and those can be really hard and challenging for the practitioners involved in that as well as the patient 
and just having to learn to be kind to yourself when you have worked as an MDT, but sometimes that is the ceiling of care and that's all you can provide for a patient. And you know you've given everything that you could, but, you know, biology can't always be resolved. So I think for me, the challenge is kind of that when how you how you deal with your own emotions within that when when you can't do anything but knowing that you've got the team support i suppose that you've thought through all the options and you've done best by those patients under your care i think it's really time consuming um so there's times where i've spent a whole morning in an mdt trying to figure out what the best thing is to do and we haven't reached a conclusion and you kind of sit there caring very much about the person that you're discussing, but also thinking about your to-do list and all the other jobs that are sitting in your email in your emails. Um, so it's really time consuming. Um, it requires um, an amount of personal awareness of using really, really good communication skills um, to say what you want to say and to be boundaried about it, um, to listen and listen with fascination and be really curious and try and understand um, what you're hearing, um, because if it's different to what you've said, you'll obviously have a view on it. Um, and and trying to agree actions together in an MDT, because mm -hmm. you can spend the whole morning having an MDT and, and end it without having a next step. And then that's not really a very effective MDT. So trying to agree an action plan and and trying to figure out who's responsible for different parts of that action plan and what sequence things should go in. So when we worked at the prison together, um, you would get a new person come into prison and they would have a lot of needs. And so a load of referrals would be fired off at the, at, at, at the point of their arrival. And there might be an MDT that comes together and everyone wants to get stuck in. And, you know, and that poor person is overwhelmed and overfaced with a yeah. lot of stuff. About 10 appointments in their first week. Yeah. <laughs> and their head is literally spinning with, you know, everything that they're trying to figure out. And actually, there should be a logical sequence. There should be a decision as to what needs to come first. And let's do that thing. And then what needs to come next and what needs to come after that? Because patients find that with when they engage with an MDT there might be quite a lot happening and then it might go quiet for quite a long time and so oncology patients might be quite concerned and worried thinking well I don't know what happened and what's happening next and if I've been forgotten about and it and they, they can be quite worried and sitting waiting and feeling like every second counts um, so that kind of setting some actions and communicating them to a patient is something that needs to happen yeah. and there needs to be clarity around and I suppose another challenge is making sure that everyone sticks to the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that you've got no one in your MDT that goes rogue. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, we've all got stories of a few. Oh, yeah. We've, it does happen. It does happen. Um, and, and, yeah, it's all about culture. A workplace culture really informs whether you've got an MDT that's really healthy and respectful and functioning or an MDT that isn't and whether it exists but is only tokenistic or whether it doesn't even exist. Um, so so those, are, those are the challenges. And if you're a clinician that comes into work at a place and the culture's rubbish, I would struggle to know how you would influence that at that level and, and um, 
because it it needs to be a whole systems approach to change culture. Mm. So that's that's a big that's a big chunky one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, like if you were a band five and you went to work somewhere. <laughs> but if you were a band five and you went to work somewhere and you felt like you needed an NDT, but they kind of said that's not what we do here. Um, I don't know how you would influence change mm. as that single voice at that stage. Um, yeah. I would hope there's so much evidence base that proves that MDT working is better and more effective and creates efficiencies. So I would hope that most places now uh, have a functioning MDT, but it's just that I know in my time in the NHS that that's variable. So, yeah. Yeah, I think like you've discussed all the the positives and the importance of MDT, um, the challenges do sound difficult, especially when you were saying about maybe not reaching a outcome. So there may be difference of opinion, there may be conflict. So I guess the good thing is having everyone involved, but then also the challenges is having everyone involved. So it's um, it sounds very difficult. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that probably is the entire podcast in a nutshell. MDT working can be very difficult. It can be really frustrating. It can be something that you need to take to your own supervision to just talk through the emotions that that invokes in you. Um, but the flip side is that when it when it's great, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so we should all aspire to it. We should all keep trying. We should all go to it with open arms and, and really, really try. And when it's a struggle, you should we should talk about it. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of your roles, I know we've talked about them separately, but together. So as you said, you've both worked together in HMP Berwyn and you've worked together within the MDT there. Can you explain a little bit more about how you've both worked as a dietitian and a speech and language therapist and why that may be important in you both working together for a patient, for example? Yeah, so I suppose if I think of a case that's not prison related, kind of your typical hospital format, um, where I first came across a speech and language therapist, because I didn't come across them during my training, was in dysphagia management of patients, uh, particularly on the stroke wards, where patients would come in, they'd be assessed by speech and language, um, put on texture recommendations or deemed nil by mouth. And then as part of that MDT working, speech and language would then come to me and say, we need a feeding regime for this patient because they're going to be NG fed, or we need a best interest meeting because this patient has been on level four puree diet for six weeks and they're showing no signs of improvement. So we need to be talking about next steps with maybe peg feeding and having that involvement within that more medical model. And then when I came to the prison, Jackie opened up my eyes into the world of speech and language therapy that I'd never seen before. Um, because I think in my head, I only thought that you worked with Stammers and I thought that you worked in dysphagia, which I'm sorry. Shocking, isn't it? I do apologise. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then I came to the prison and Jackie was that person that taught me how to kind of process my thoughts and feelings around the patients we were working with because it was a lot of difficult patients that had committed crimes that you know you can't even picture um but also you've taught me loads about what makes people tick and what makes people do what they do and how you have to adapt your style of dietetics to meet that patient need um so we did a lego therapy session with a prisoner 
And that blew my mind because I had no idea kind of the cognitive ability or lack of cognitive ability with some of our patients, because unless you're in that environment, you know, I had had a referral for the same chat for diabetes and you make the assumption that somebody's going to be able to come in and have a cohesive conversation with you and retain that information. And it's not until you start MDT working and you see things from the other side that you appreciate that things are not that straightforward and you might have all the knowledge to impart on someone, but unless you work collaboratively. Oh, it reminds me that there was this gorgeous young man and um, and he'd got a gastro problem, hadn't he? And he was anemic as a result of this gastro problem. He'd got no idea. He, he was really young. I want to say early 20s. Yeah. Even though it was early 20s, emotionally and psychologically, he was probably much younger. He was like a little bouncy tigger, um, gorgeous young man. And um, and he was ha- experiencing blood in his stools and his his health literacy was dreadful. And his first thought was, well, I'm going to die. You know, this is going to kill me. I'm going to die. Um, so he presented um, to the to the healthcare team there, really worried that he was going to die and having this problem. And um, and he'd already had a lot of loss in his life. So, you know, he'd, he was really vulnerable to that thought. And um, so he was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, wasn't he? Yeah. And, um, and he had no idea what that meant. Really, really limited understanding of, you know, the plumbing inside of him. Yeah. So we, I sat and drew lots of pictures with him to help him understand the plumbing. And we looked at some pictures of colitis on the internet. And um and things like that and he was working with Fran to modify what he was eating and he was working with the GP to get the right medication in place um and he had to he was due to go out and leave the prison setting to go to the local hospital for an iron infusion and he was like well I'm not going to go and we were like but you you kind of need to go and sitting and chatting with him using my speech and language therapy lens of understanding him was like what 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 part of that message of you need to go and have an iron infusion is making you wobble um so we were able to sit down and 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 understand that that the only iron that he'd ever known was the metal iron and he was really unclear why he needed to have some metal put inside of him and what benefit that that would achieve for his tummy and also whether how that would work does he have to go and eat a chunk of iron or like what is an infusion like mm. um you know all of these words were sort of new and confusing for him and um and so you know i i sit sat and drew pictures explaining to him iron and blood and blood cells and why he felt shattered because he was anemic and that that was to do with iron but not a lead bar (laughs) or an iron bar but Um, seeing him through my dietetic lens and my training I'd have never have picked up on that no never and I I wouldn't have even thought that that's how he had interpreted it Mm. and so in the end we made him like he went for his iron infusion and he felt so much better and then we made him you told me all of the things he should be eating or avoiding and I made him a visual menu of all the things he should be eating or avoiding yeah. and um we worked together to to support this young man and to help him go to his appointments and to ask the questions that that he sort of had misunderstood and sometimes you misunderstand something you don't even realize you've misunderstood it because you know what iron is and you think you've like oh my god they want me to eat a bar of iron um 
but you so, can see why he didn't want to go yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh it's it's funny isn't it because as a I'm thinking in my own ground as a student at the moment where we're taught how the importance of not using jargon and all these words that other people may understand and that's just a classic example of the importance of explaining things even if it is like through a, a simple uh diagram or looking on the internet and just breaking things down a little bit more to make people more aware because I think we we will understand it as student clinicians or as clinicians yourselves but the general population it may mean something as an example completely different so um yeah that's a, a vital part and I think doing your job separately is amazing but then if you're aware of it together which MDT work in it it then enhances everything together so that young man his outcomes were so much better because we Mm. worked together and understood him together yeah and so that made a big difference didn't it yeah oh he was such a honey honestly But then, you know, also reflecting at times when I worked in more traditional settings and I worked on a stroke unit and there were times where we had people that were nailed by mouth that should have an NG tube but wouldn't tolerate it because they were so unwell with their stroke that they would pull it out without any awareness of it. And you do a swallow assessment and discover that they could manage 10 teaspoons of something before their um, swallow fatigued so that they weren't safe anymore. And so I remember sitting with dietitians and working out their calorific needs and then doing weird mixtures of of um, different dietetic supplements mixed together so that you get the right consistency, like a bit of 40 creme and a bit of Ensure yeah. mixed together and trying to create textures that fit with it, with ITSI and try yeah. and have enough nutrition in to keep that person going and reviewing that on a day-by-day basis because they're, they're poorly and they're fragile. Yeah. And we can get through today with this thousand calories that we've managed to get into them with this weird cocktail. But tomorrow we need to do a bit better and 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 kind of working with dietitians on a, a day-by-day basis. And, oh gosh, I had a, a lady that had got cancer and she really didn't want to have anything solid and she really wanted hot chocolate. And so we were melting Maltesers in hot chocolate to put a few extra calories into it to t- to top oh, yeah. her up. And and like the weird and wonderful things that you can come up with if you're happy to have a punt on working with your colleagues. And if your colleagues feel safe enough in that relationship that they can go, let's put some Maltesers in it. Um, You know, completely kind of left field suggestion, but really worked for her. And she yeah. loved it. And she did so well. Um. So that's where it's it's that opportunity to think yeah. outside the box. And I think someone. it's really important to take from this that if you don't know what professions do, ask, go and shadow them, spend some time with with them. Don't you know? Don't close yourself off to it because you don't know it. Because everybody has got such brilliant input, and we all bring our own piece of the puzzle, don't we? Mm, definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting hearing the the two professions separately but then how even just dietitians and speech and language therapists as a team and then thinking of everything on top just having you two together makes a dramatic difference um to a patient as you know as well as everyone else say in my career that being friends with your dietitian is so important um and so conversely i would say if you're a dietitian that's about to go out into the world 
make friends with your speech and language therapist you've got more in common than you realize you you know there's a lot that you're trying to achieve that's that that, that runs parallel and if you can if you can bring those parallel lines closer together and work together you're going to nail it and it's going to be beautiful yeah and you're going to have some serious giggles along the way aren't you don't know what you mean <laughs> <laughs> so I, I i know we've touched on um the the benefits of an mdt but in terms of being a successful MDT, what are the main factors that you both feel are vital to being a successful MDT, whether it be as a team or individually? Yeah, I suppose it's just having that transparency for me that everybody's voices are heard um, and everybody feels that they can contribute to that bigger picture. And that for me is the success and just mm. respecting everybody's opinions. And it's really hard when you're newly qualified and you're quite nervous and you're not entirely sure that your plan is exactly what it should be and you question your decisions all the time. Sometimes it's really hard in those discussions to be the dietetic advocate and to be the voice of your profession because you're nervous about it. But it's being compassionate to yourself as well and saying, I'm not going to know everything and I'm here, I'm at this meeting, I'm, I'm having these discussions because I need a bigger picture and I'm, I'm going in with an open mind. Mm. And going in with an open mind makes it successful, I think, mm. because you can come out of those and you've completely changed your opinion. Yeah, you've that's got... a really good point because yeah. a lot of people will turn, turn up at an MDT meeting with their idea of what they want to see happen. Yeah. And if they're so rigid with that then there's no point in having an MDT. They could just go and crack on as in silo working. Mm. But, you know, you need to go with an open mind and and have that, that ability to be flexible because someone might have a better idea. And, and I would definitely say I've been to MDTs, but I've had like horrific imposter syndrome. And I yeah. thought, why am I here? And I'm just faking it. And But actually, then you kind of have to check yourself and think, do you know what? There isn't another person that's the same professional as me in this room. And I've done my research and I've read up about the patient and I've done my training and I've got my registration and I have every right to be sat in this seat. And, you know, I, I am worthy of being here. And um and and so imposter syndrome needs to be checked at the door, doesn't it? And, yeah. But it's, it's tough. We always work on throughout our whole uh, career. I I a massive. I yeah. I, I <laughs> think like so. So when you start off in your career, you kind of assume that it's only you that's got imposter syndrome, and everyone else has got got everything sussed. And I've been practicing donkey years now, and colleagues that I graduated with that we all used to sit and have imposter syndrome together, and we still we're still in touch, we still chat. And they're still having imposter syndrome and I'm still having imposter syndrome. And I don't know what it is about AHPs, but we're really hard on ourselves. We're high about, maintenance. <laughs> we, we are really, really hard on ourselves about imposter syndrome. Yeah. And um yeah. and that is that is a that is a massive thing that yeah. you know. Yeah. And if you can overcome that and you can be the voice yeah. for your profession, it will be successful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's important, like you said, to to remember that you're the professional you're the specialist in that particular area so everyone might well everyone they won't is know a... they won't mm. know what you know so you're yeah. assuming that everyone knows what you know and that you're not worthy of being in the room but actually those people don't know what you know and so you know 
be big and bold and be proud and put your knowledge out there. And you only need to kind of like drop your bit of amazing dietetic knowledge in there and then just drop the mic, really, because people will be inside thinking, oh, wow, I had no idea about that. And they won't tell you necessarily or they will when they get to know you better or when you're, you know, when the trust is better. But um, they they honestly don't. We've had, um, we've had quite a few mic drop moments, haven't oh, we? Loads of, loads of mic yeah. drop moments where I think it's nice. Yeah, they're important, those moments. I think it helps to boost your confidence and to hopefully try and steer away from the imposter syndrome as well. Um, mm. So do you have, I'm sure you have um, examples, but do you have any particular examples where there was an outcome that was achieved that may not have been achieved if it wasn't for an MDT working care um so i'll i'll do a dietetic example and then i suppose you can do a speechy one um this is very medical model even though i'm trying to move away from that i'm still you know ingrained in it we had a prisoner arrive that had been prescribed um nutritional supplements for 10 years he'd been bouncing around different prisons for 10 years um and he was referred to me He had, I think his BMI was around 16. He was having an excessive calorie intake and he wasn't gaining any weight. So I did my my delving in, my my dietetic stuff, and I found out that he was definitely malabsorbing and nobody had really questioned it. And I'd gathered this history that he'd been in a lot of fights, he'd been stabbed previously and he'd had a pancreatic injury. Um, so there was a bigger picture there, but without the MDT working, so I contacted our phlebotomist, I contacted our nursing teams um, and our GP teams. Without that, we'd have never got a diagnosis for him. And we did. We got the stool sample back for him. We found out that he um, had really, really low fecal elastase. And as a result, we started in on um, pancreatic enzyme replacement. And part of that bigger picture was he came back to me three months later and his BMI was 24. He was had enough energy to go to the gym. He was talking about his quality of life. His vitamin biomarkers were amazing compared to where they were. And he thanked me for changing his world. But it wasn't it wasn't me that changed it. It was the bigger picture, because without feeling confident enough for me to have reached out to the wide team, we'd have never got past the point of me just seeing that there was an issue. Um so that that's I'm my so story. Pleased you told that story because that's one of my favourite stories. This this man had been struggling on the toilet for ten years, yeah. and then he was having lovely, nice toilet times. Yeah, and and uh, and and that's kind of the thing that I was talking about about imposter syndrome because. I met Fran and Fran's just like, oh, I'm just a little dietitian. And I had never heard any of the words that she used when she was talking to me about this man. Yeah. And when she was telling me about it all and my mind just, my mind was blown. I was just like, it. and so I'm so pleased you told that story because it's one of my favourite stories. I know you like that story. I, I, I do think you'd enjoy that one. I did, I did really enjoy it. Um, and that's the thing, like, I kind of think, you know, I know what I'm doing and I know I know something about what dietitians do, but I would never have known about that stuff. And that's why you're worth your weight in gold, because what, you know, the, the knowledge that you hold is is massive and important. And the GP didn't know about it either, did he? No, he didn't. No, which I was shocked by because you make the presumption that doctors know everything but I've also, learned that I have to say our GP was super clever yeah. and really really good it wasn't that he was a, an average GP no it's just something that you he don't come across know. that often yeah 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 
So, um, so I'm really pleased you told that story. Um, so a story for me, um, again, a prison one. So we had a gentleman who was um, English as a second language who came to the prison and he was a BMI of 15, 16. Yeah. And he was really, really mentally unwell. But because he didn't speak English, it was really hard to know that he was really mentally unwell. And um, he was um, not eating in the prison, partially because he didn't know whether he needed to pay for it and he hadn't got any money, and partially because he didn't understand the menu, and partially because he was really, really fearful that his food would be tampered with because he was really mentally unwell. And... um, so there was a lot of toing and froing around this person because there was not a functional MDT really in that different professionals were wanting to push the problem onto someone else. So the the psychiatrist felt that the low body weight was the biggest factor and that he was at risk of refeeding syndrome. And that, and this guy had not eaten well for a really long time. This had not happened overnight. Um, so the, the psychiatrist was really, really pushing it back to the GP and saying, this man is physically unwell. And so the GP was leaning into Fran and myself to say, how can we do communication with this guy? Not that being English as a second language is a a speech and language therapy need normally, but actually there's access to pictures and things that could help us here. And then also there being the kind of, well, you know, can you guys chat to him about the fact he doesn't have to pay for his food and see if you can get him eating? And it became apparent that... um, he would prefer food that was sealed because he knew then it wasn't hampered with. And it became apparent that the MDT wasn't functioning that well. And really somebody needed to try and act as a linchpin and bring the MDT together and start communication flow. So I sort of took that role and I went and linked with your help because you wrote a list for me. of we. I went to the catering department and got a list of food that was available that was sealed and brought it back to Fran. And you worked through what might be the right calorie intake for him. Yeah. And we negotiated him being sent a bag of sealed food that had different things in that might work. Um, and then linking up and negotiating with our physical health colleagues to say, actually, the refeeding syndrome, we, we need to try and get a blood test and we need to try and communicate with him about that. And then linking back in with our mental health colleagues to try and get them to understand that actually the physical health risks weren't as big as they thought they were. They They thought that literally if this man ate something, he would go into immediate shock and, mm-hmm. and pass away, didn't they? Yeah. And and so there were, there was lots of lots of toing and froing, and it wasn't the most functional MDT in the history of time. But eventually, once once I I got people together to sit down in a room, made a plan together, wrote down the actions, said who would do what, got some cohesive agreement, um, and that man ended up being sectioned under the Mental Health Act and going to a mental health hospital where he could have the appropriate treatment for his his psychosis which would then address his eating need because actually 
if he was not mentally unwell, he would probably be more willing to have food. So that's that thing again about the sequence that things have to happen in that initially there wasn't clarity and the and the the psychiatrist wanted his physical health sorted out first before his his mental health. But you can't sort out the physical health unless you sort out the mental health. So it was it was a struggle. And we there were there were points, weren't there, in that few weeks that we were like, oh my goodness, we're talking about this one chap again. Yeah. Um, but we got there in the end. So the yeah. MDT approach worked, but it was not easily born. It had to be created and shaped and pushed out. Yeah. And I think what I've taken from that that was really nice is that you can educate your colleagues as part of that MDT. So you bring your voice, but you also bring your knowledge and you improve you improve it for the next time they come across a similar situation so that in theory if somebody else came into the prison with a similar presentation we would then know right this worked last time and Mm. let's have a conversation about whether it's appropriate this time Mm. Mm. I think they're they're both really good examples and I appreciate it it took a lot of effort and time but I think despite that it just shows how vital it is to have an MDT and to ensure the patient's having the right care for them to get the right outcome. So um, that's really interesting to hear. Thank you for those examples. Um, I know we've talked about um, MDT in terms of the advice that you incorporate as a dietitian and a speech and language therapist into the, the primary care of a patient. But at first glance, it may seem that therapies are not considered a priority of a profession within an MDT. Is there ever a time when a dietitian or a speech and language therapist may initiate an MDT or does it always come from from above? I think now I'm working in mental health, allied health professionals are the ones that are instigating the MDTs more so than maybe in that medical model hospital approach that I've worked in previously. Normally it would be a doctor's Mm -hmm. calling you and you attend a meeting, whereas actually now it's having those discussions within my, say, office at the moment and saying, right, we need a best interest meeting, we need to raise this as a wider issue. Um, Mm. It depends whether you're working in a medical model or psychosocial model. Um, In a medical model, what will trigger the MDT is the thing that is medically wrong with the individual. So the individual will present and be diagnosed with whatever, and that diagnosis will trigger the need for an MDT. So it's a reactive model. Um, Whereas in a a biopsychosocial informed situation, like a mental health setting, that's um, you've got a person that's, that's got some, some enduring mental health needs but it's about proactively managing those and proactively responding so it wouldn't necessarily wait until something happened to start it it would be like oh we can see that to provide good care to this person we need to start doing mdt working yeah absolutely and i think for me it's having that side that it's not that react to a situation it's a preventative measure so if i'm walking onto a ward and i'm seeing not breast practice within the serving of food it's having that confidence to say right let's have a discussion about this because this could be a problem for a patient further down the line Mm. Mm. and then you've got settings where so for example people that are in secure settings are often being managed on the care program approach which is um, shortened to cpa and so they would have 
regular small MDTs that they're part of maybe every two weeks um, to keep them going against the action plan that was set in their kind of bigger MDT. So to keep them going, keep them engaged, help them ask questions. So they would have small ongoing MDT input. Um, and then every six months, they would have a big MDT where everybody and, and you know, you'd invite everyone and their family and all sorts of people. And, and, and kind of that would be part of proactively managing that person's recovery from where they're at to, to being well and to living their best lives in the community. So it's just different based on the client group you're working with and the type of setting you're working with. And there are some settings where MDT working is so embedded that it's like breathing in and out and it wouldn't be questioned or unusual. And then there's other settings where it's medically driven and it needs to be triggered by an an event. And then there's some settings where it just, it's kind of a, a thing that happens more ad hoc and, and and is not so embedded in the in the culture. You both you both do amazing jobs, um, and I think it's it's really highlighted the importance of MDT working. But also, like you said before, as a student dietitian, get to know your speech and language therapists. Um, as a speech and language therapist, get to know your dietitian. So it's it's really important. And MDT working in general, it's it's um it's just highlighted the whole importance of it. So have you, either of you ever experienced a bad MDT working experience or, and and how did you learn from this, whether it be from your side or somebody else's side? Well, can I go first? Of course you can. Um, I was working in a hospital setting, so it's a medical model and a patient is admitted. Um, he had had a really, really significant stroke some years before, and his swallow was completely unsafe, and he was peg-fed, and he was full nursing care in a nursing home. And he wasn't particularly elderly. I, I guess I want to say he was in his 60s. Um, so not particularly really old or frail person, but really disabled by a sudden stroke that came out of nowhere, um, had tried stroke rehab, had been far too neurologically damaged to benefit from it, and had ended up being discharged to a nursing home with much older people. His life completely changed, and he was peg-fed. And he, um, he had been in and out of hospital a few times because he kept dislodging his peg. And so I had had a referral, come and see this gentleman. Um, he's been a, an urgent admission because he's he's removed his own peg. This is like the fourth time he's removed his peg. Will you come and see him and see if he can take anything orally because he's refusing to have an NG put in and he's being uncooperative. He was also um, had a lot of communication barriers. So he understood things, but found it really hard to articulate his message verbally. So would often articulate, um via body language or being uncooperative um so will you come and see this man um we can't get an ng in him because he won't cooperate he's pulled his peg out um will you see if he can tolerate anything orally because then we can work with the dietitian to see if we can meet his needs while we get him a surgery slot to put this peg back in so i went to see him and the first thing i tried to establish is how much he understood and whether he could answer closed questions and use his hand to point at a yes and no so that I could ask him questions and he could tell me answers. And through that conversation, 
it, he essentially told me that he was very, very depressed and unhappy. Um, he was taking out his own peg on purpose because he wanted to end his life. And he um, didn't consent or agree to it being recited. And um, that he just, yeah, he just wanted this to end. Um, so I have to then advocate and be the patient's voice. So I had then asked if we could have a mental capacity assessment. He was on a gastro ward and I felt that it would be really important to get the stroke consultant to come and see him and give an opinion around mental capacity that was outside of um, the gastro medics. So I had asked for that to happen. And I went back the next day and I toddled onto the ward and the um, the medics had just gone ahead and booked him into surgery and he was booked in to have a peg recited the following day. And no one had done anything with the mental capacity query. And um, that was a real problem for me, morally and ethically, because we can't do a surgical procedure on a person that is not consenting to it because that's assault. And so luckily I was really friendly with a lady in legal and risk. <laughs> So I immediately ring her and I'm like, I've got this scenario. What should I do? And and she just completely reinforced what I already knew. But the imposter syndrome meant I had to check. And so um, I checked and we should not be putting a peg in a person that isn't consenting. They cannot consent him assuming that he doesn't have capacity without doing a capacity assessment because capacity must always be assumed to be there. And my conversation with him had indicated that he probably does have capacity, but we need to formalise that. And so um, I was told by Legal and Risk to ring the surgeon, to ring the um, operating theatre and cancel his surgery slot. So wow. this is like hardcore big girl pants time. Yeah. So I ring and cancel his surgery slot. And everyone on the ward is looking at me like I've lost my mind. And then they rang the consultant. Um, gastromedic that was um responsible for this man's care and he came on the ward and like rah, 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 rah. um and very much like who are you and why are you messing with this and um and was I mean to be honest it was the first time I was ever sworn at by a really senior colleague wow. um and I was just like this is a lot <laughs> and um but I knew what I was doing and why and I checked in with the patient again and he was like, yeah, yeah, I need you to help me with this. Um, so then the next day um, we were going to have the MDT meeting. So um, to discuss what we should do about this. And so there was this big consultant that had sworn at me. His group of other doctors and underlings um, the gentleman's family who love him very dearly and want to keep him alive regardless of his wishes um, and then they they had run the department and was like you know get that young speech therapy girl here we're having this meeting she needs to she's done this so she needs to come and account for it and so I had to literally just you know yeah you know nail my all my kind of gumption to the mast and go into this meeting knowing that I was the only one that was representing the patient voice and that we hadn't followed process around um, a mental capacity assessment or taking you know, consenting him properly 
that the family would be really hating on me. Um, and I just, I went in and I stood to my, I stood with my guns and I just stuck to the fact that this is what he has said and this is legally what we have to do and this is enshrined in the Mental Capacity Act and therefore I can, you know, you can be as upset with me as you want, but I'm fulfilling my registration here by sticking to what is legally and morally appropriate. Um, and so that was really tough. Oh yeah. my goodness, what a day that was. I ate some chocolate. <laughs> it sounds uh, it sounds really difficult, but like you said, you're you you know, you're you're the registered professional and you've done things as they should have been. So uh, a good example of a very difficult time. Well, the decision was um that we needed a mental capacity assessment and that was completed not by me because I felt that having a separate person would be really helpful for the MDT. And so that was completed and he was found to have capacity and not want a peg fitted. And um, the decision was made for him to eat and drink at risk. And we knew that that would be potentially life ending for him. And that's what he wanted to do. And so he stayed in hospital. He ate and drank at risk. And then ultimately he passed away. Um, But that that for me is not a bad outcome because that's his wishes and he's a grown-up and he's allowed to have a different choice to me and I cannot possibly understand what it's like to live in his world in a nursing home and having people do your personal care and your life becomes very small and um, your opportunities are so different and um, you know and that's that's the beauty of mental capacity isn't it that people can make a decision that's different to your decision but you've got a legal framework that helps you with that yeah and, uh, definitely and so kind of the end point I I found peace with it all um in that I do think it was right for him yeah and I think for me when I felt that MDT working hasn't gone well and I've come out feeling very frustrated is when I've not felt listened to um so an example we had a prisoner that came in who definitely had an eating disorder but didn't have a diagnosis of this eating disorder. So local services wouldn't accept his referral for specialist input because he didn't have a diagnosis. But our psychiatrist within the prison wasn't trained in that area. So they were very much reliant on me as a dietitian to manage that situation. And it was completely beyond my scope and my knowledge base. And I was seeking appropriate support and supervision through the specialist service. But the MDT didn't understand because they just thought dietitians train in this and this is your job. Mm. So my frustration with that was more so that I didn't feel listened to and I didn't feel respected as part of that team. Um, I remember that case. That was so awful because the MDT in that scenario was a barrier to that person accessing appropriate care and for you to practice within your competence in your registration yeah. and they couldn't understand why you couldn't suddenly be an expert in eating disorders and mm. just sort it mm. and I think you'll have that within your dietetic student journey you'll come across a situation where you think this would be really good for a patient and so this will be something in your way that will hinder that and hopefully you can work through it but sometimes you can't and that can be really, really hard. And when you reflect on it and you think I've done everything that I could possibly do for that patient and the outcome wasn't what it needed to be because I had those barriers. And, you know, as you said, sometimes having those people involved is the best thing that can happen. But also it's not always 
yeah yeah I think it's um it's really good to highlight that you know you do things in the right way and sometimes the outcome isn't the way that you expected but that's okay um I think we can only do so much as students and clinicians yourself it's it's just making sure that you do things the right way and you you learn from experiences whether they're good whether they're bad this is where supervision comes in though because it's those cases that frustrate you or upset you or make you wonder did I do what I should have done um, that you should be taking to supervision so supervision is also a bit of a mixed bag in terms of quality of it Um, but supervision shouldn't be just about how many people are on your caseload how many people of you are you seeing in a week um, and about productivity it should be about these clinical cases and you should be able to sit with a supervisor that you trust and respect and talk about the emotions that were invoked in you in a scenario and your own well-being around that and and so that's where leading into some really good quality supervision is absolutely key yeah definitely especially as you're starting off as a band five clinician and and starting and it it can build somebody can't it It can have a, a, a good foundation of supervision is vital um so finally then to finish off um, I'd like to ask you both as experienced clinicians knowing everything that you know now what top tips would you give to current student clinicians going forward breathe it's going to be okay you know you don't know what you don't know and that's absolutely fine everybody brings their own skill set their own knowledge you're going to be an excellent member of that MDT. Mm. You've just got to believe in yourself and push through that imposter syndrome Mm. and seek appropriate support if you need it. And if you're struggling, that's completely normal. We all feel like that as students, but you'll get through it and it will be the best thing that's ever happened to you. My top tip is about imposter syndrome too, because you will think that everyone else is you will see them and you will think they are absolutely smashing it and they are winning at life and and you will judge yourself negatively against that and feel like you're the only person but actually everyone's got it and very much so within AHPs and things like keeping a diary that focuses on the things that you've achieved because in those quiet moments when you feel like you're not good enough you're only going to think about the things you didn't achieve or the things that you feel you could have done better so noting the things that you've done well and the things you've achieved so that you can look at those things and reflect on them and kind of having those opportunities to get feedback from the people around you about you know, what what this week have you done have I done that you feel you wouldn't have known or you wouldn't have thought of and ask those questions you're not there fishing for compliments but it's a brilliant way of finding your place in your world and in your team um you know, so so don't be scared to ask for, for feedback. We're all a little bit worried about feedback because we all think it's going to be like, oh, well, you know, positive, negative sandwich or whatever. But, you know, ask a clinician that's a colleague that you like and that you trust to tell you what they what you've done that week that blew their mind um, because you will have done and you need to hear it. Um, so don't be scared about doing that. And don't be scared about talking about imposter syndrome with your friends, your colleagues in supervision, because that will be your biggest barrier to conquering the world um, is the fact that you believe you can't. And actually, you're awesome and you can. And there's like that. I'm so happy and confident with the future of 
of speech and language therapy and dietetics because the workforce we've got coming through are just incredible people and you know you're gonna you're gonna smash it and you're gonna be amazing but you know the thing that will hold you back is your own self-belief about it yeah I love that advice yeah no (laughs) so true and really actually having a manager like you has helped Mm -hmm. me believe in myself Mm -hmm. and I just feel like everybody needs a bit of Jackie sometimes (laughs) hopefully hopefully by people listening to this podcast they can they can feel that energy go and find a jackie go and find somebody that empowers you to be the best version of yourself yeah yeah and it's really good because we've talked about so much today i think it's just not just mdt working just communication having the support having the supervision imposter syndrome just believing in yourself and like you said fran just breathing and taking it all in learning like you said we're not going to know everything and as students i feel like we we feel like we should know everything but it's not until we get out into the field where we meet each other and it just builds on it constantly you know though i was i was chatting really recently to um to a band five speech and language therapist who was saying, but I just don't know enough. And, and I was saying, actually, you know, way more than I know, because you are so fresh out of uni and all the knowledge and theories are still really fresh in your mind. Whereas I've, I've had years and years to forget stuff and to be a one trick pony. And like, I can do one thing really well that makes that person believe that I can do a million things really well, but I can't, I can do one thing really well. And yet they're doing a lot of things well. And, and, and they just, you just, I think it's human nature to negatively judge yourself, but you know, you bad fives are properly great and special because you're so new to learning and you know the theories and you know the most up-to-date evidence base you know like if you polled a whole load of people that had been working for 20 years and asked them if they'd read anything that was evidence-based research in the last 12 months then i reckon you'd struggle to find people yeah people they they get out the habit of reading they don't engage with the journals they don't go to a journal club they you know so the stuff that you guys know is is more than your senior colleagues it's just that yeah. they make it look easy yeah you guys are the future of our professions but then we've got role models like yourselves to look up to and and steer towards so where uh, i think uh, again it goes into the whole teamwork and approach doesn't it <laughs> Um, well, Fran, Jackie, thank you so much both for your time today um, and for sharing all your experiences. It's been really valuable to hear about uh, the roles that you're doing, the MDT working and how dietitians work with speech and language therapists and how the two therapies often go hand in hand. So thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Both Fran and Jackie's social media handles will be linked in the show notes for you to take a look at. A huge thank you once again to New Ultra for making this podcast possible. If you've enjoyed listening to the episode of the Dietitian RD2B podcast, then please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more RD2Bs for future shows. You can also follow New Ultra on social media at New Ultra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical news nutrition thank you for listening our next episode will be out soon so please come back and take a listen bye